0: Um, a number have said to me, one of the hardest things, and as Sally was chatting with the kids about, um, as we think about the Lord's Prayer, has been the idea that it's a prayer that we know so well. We are so familiar with it. We, we learnt it at school. We, uh, we memorised it. We parrot it. We sort of slip into autopilot, but never actually slow down and think about what it, what it really means, the kind of things we're, we're praying for. It's like an old friend but we don't really know them that well when it comes down to it. And so we've been saying that prayer is something you can learn. The disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. And so week on week, we've been learning together what it means to pray. And in that vein, to that end, I don't know if you've spotted, but there is something of a gear change between verses 10 and verse 11. If you've got the Burgundy Bibles, it's page 970, And we're in Matthew 6 and verse 10. I don't know if you've ever thought that before. We've seen so far that this is a prayer that Jesus taught, and it starts with us correctly addressing our Father in heaven. There's an intimacy of Father, but there's the power and yet righteousness of one in heaven. There's the plurality of the prayer. We said this is our Father. It's a prayer that we pray together we pray with those sat around us next to us in this room it's a family prayer and then last week as sally was teaching the children we saw that the three vertical your petitions we don't just jump straight into give us today our daily bread but we reorientate our lives afresh around who he is and who we are hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done We're not at the heart of our lives, but he is. These mighty, glorious, eternal, majestic, lofty truths about him, his reigning, he's our creator, and us and who we are. It's big picture stuff. And then yet, verse 10 to verse 11, big gear change, because it slows right down, it zooms right in to our daily stuff. Very abrupt normality of life. He's in heaven, he's glorious, he's powerful, and yet he's our father. So he cares about our daily life. And so we get this foundational perspective on him first. We put those pillars in place. His glory, his kingdom. But then the focus as we finish today is on the life of the believer. And what we'll see is ours is a father in heaven who provides and he pardons and he protects. So the first thing we'll look at in verse 11 is that he is one who provides. Give us today our daily bread. And you know, I think if we dig down into this, this is a hard prayer for us to pray. For all kinds of reasons. It's hard because it reveals ultimately that we are a people who are dependent upon our Father. And yet our pride doesn't deal well with that dependency as a people we with our first parents adam and eve who walked out on god we we say we we don't want you lord we don't want to depend on you we'd rather go it alone we're the shouty toddlers who, who think we don't need him you see that when there are problems in life and so often rather than our first port of call to be to go to him So often the reality is we exhaust every other option first, and then we go to him. He's the last port of call. So it's a hard prayer to pray because we don't like to be reminded that we're dependent. In fact, we want to be independent. There's something very human about that. It's the nature of our pride. But it's hard as well because it feels a long way from where many of us are, day by day and week by week, with with supermarkets, with freezers full of food, with with fast food joints who will serve you in 30 seconds. Brothers and sisters around the world will feel the strength of this prayer far more from that perspective. We miss it in the West. As Jesus spoke, he was speaking to more of a rural agrarian culture. They were reliant on farming and crops. They were more susceptible to droughts, to disease, to flooding, and In reality, we don't think that much that God has got a lot to do with our food on our plates, really. Maybe a quick prayer before we eat to try and remind us, but we can easily not. The prayer doesn't mean that we don't need farmers or scientists or food technicians. It doesn't mean that God's just going to drop food from the sky in a sort of cloudy with a chance of meatballs type way, if you've seen that film. Now, as in the Bible, very often God's provision comes through the hands of others, through the work and the labor of others. There's a children's book at the moment, which I rather like. Um, It's called Eric Says Thanks. It's a book about a boy called Eric eating his breakfast. He's got toast for breakfast. He's a good lad, and he starts off the book by saying thanks to his mum. He says, Mum, thanks a gazillion. My brekkie was yum. But she sends him off to the baker's to go and say thanks to the baker for providing the bread. The baker says, no, 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 you need to go and talk to Dan, the flour delivery man. Strong name. <laughs> Dan says, go talk to the miller who grinds the wheat. The miller says, go talk to Farmer Pete. Farmer Pete says, look to the Lord. He sends the sun and the rain to grow the wheat. And it's not very helpful in that because we are so distant from that kind of a mindset. We don't know our bakers or millers or farmers, and we forget that the Lord provides the food that we need. I think as well, the third reason, though, is, is hard, is because we have freezers. So it's not just the complexity of the food production, but we can freeze food for years. I'm not saying you should look in our freezer for that, but you might find some monstrosities, but... Do you see, but as you pray for daily bread, daily bread this does seem a very long way from our context, doesn't it? The daily word is an interesting word to use. It basically means that you need to pray for the, the near future, not necessarily for the bread of the day, maybe for tomorrow as well, but it seems to be an everyday prayer for the immediate. a prayer for each day at a time. Lord, give us what we need. It's not having it all planned out, not having all the I's dotted and the T's crossed, provided for, sorted, but rather looking to him each and every day to give us what we need for the near future, acknowledging we're dependent, Lord, we need you, we can't do this on our own. And of course it would have been far more pressing then, of course it would, if you were ill then, that may mean a day without work, that may mean a day without food. For your family. For a crop to fail, that would be disastrous. If you were here earlier in the year, back in June-July time, you may remember from our series in Numbers, we saw the people going through the wilderness, and some of the, the prayer here, I think, resonates very strongly with our journeying in the wilderness with them, as God provided for them. I think it's pretty likely we're meant to have that episode in our mind as we read this prayer, It was three things often that they were looking for as they looked to their God to provide. They prayed or they longed for sustenance. They said, Lord, give us bread. They prayed for forgiveness. And they prayed for his protection. Which seemed to be the three things we're praying for here. Daily sustenance for them came in the form of manna, bread from heaven, that that could not, aside from the Sabbath, be kept overnight. Every day, Lord, give us what we need. Please give us what we need. Please give us what we need. It wasn't flashy bread. You remember, they used to look back to Egypt and, and long for cucumbers and exotic f- food and fruits and the kind of stuff they had in Egypt. But the Lord gave them bread. He gave them what they needed. Did they trust him? No. No, again and again and again and again. They didn't trust him. They failed. It's striking that already in Matthew, Jesus has been through the wilderness and trusted the Lord where the people did not trust him in the Old Testament. Satan commanded him to to misuse his power to provide for himself, but Jesus said, no, I will trust the Lord to provide what I need. Daily bread, the daily prayer to provide And we see God being kind to us in so many ways, but we still worry and stress and we get anxious, don't we? Is that just me? The being awake at night, concerned about things that you can't control. The shadow of worry that looms over you and seems such an enormous shadow in the darkness at night time. We want to be independent. We want to be in control of our circumstances. We want to be able to provide for ourselves, rather than being reminded that it's the Lord who provides for us. And any reminder that, that gives us a glimpse afresh that we can't provide for ourselves, that we need to look to him, is awkward. We find it hard to take. And for us, it, it may not be where our next meal is coming from, although it may be, but maybe it's a a multiplicity of other things, anxiety about all kinds of things in life, employment, or friendships, or money, or housing, or you fill the gap. What is it that keeps you awake at night? Well, Jesus will go on in just a chapter or so to say, your father knows what you need. He will provide your daily bread. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. He cares. He knows already. And you can trust him. Don't forget to ask. But he's your father in heaven. He loves to give good gifts to his children. It's part of his very character, his nature. He is the God who gives. He gave you his only son. He'll, he'll provide the bread that you need. We saw it in week one with our father. It's worth just remembering it is our father. And it is, give us today our daily bread, because that has implications of the way that we pray this prayer. Again, our knee-jerk reaction, our Western cultural mindset is, give me today my daily bread. Lord, make sure I'm sorted, please. But it's our. It's a prayer that we pray together to our Father in heaven. And families share with each other. And families look after each other, and so if I've got a table overflowing with bread, and I look at your table and see not a lot there, then something's not right. I've I've missed the point of what it means to be a Christian who prays this prayer. I've missed the point of what it means to be a, a family Christian. I've missed part of my identity. It's a common issue actually if you read through the new testament you see this kind of thing rearing its head again and again you see it in in james possibly in corinth as well that that the rich christians were not just looking after themselves actually they were taking advantage of the poorer christians the poorer christians were being sidelined abused neglected and you wonder how perhaps they prayed this prayer together at their meetings our father has implications for how we pray it in this room. It has implications for the the wider church body as well as we think through the global family of believers. If we look abroad or look elsewhere and see the needs and yet aren't moved, then I I wonder whether we've quite glimpsed what this prayer is about. Friends, take care not to be a, a dam of the Lord's blessing where we just keep all the stuff for ourselves but rather to be a channel who who gives and who gives and who gives because we have a father who gives and who gives and who gives we're to be those who share daily bread so the daily prayer then humble dependence upon our father to provide what we need for the day of course we like to store things up but the lord says pray each day for what you need So, they're to pray for provision. The second one is to pray for pardon. Verse 12 Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Why a debt? Well, because we owe him everything. Everything. We've rebelled against him. We're made in his image. We we belong to him. We owe him our all, and yet we've turned our backs on him. And so we're in his debts. And so if there's a daily prayer for daily bread of provision, there's another daily prayer for forgiveness, for pardon. It's a a a once-in-a-lifetime prayer, but it's a daily prayer. Every day acknowledging our sorrow, our confession for sin, an ongoing reminder, humbling reminder of our need for him, our need for Christ, his work of forgiveness on the cross. Some of the things we've been singing about this morning an ongoing reminder that only the Lord can provide what we need. It's finally only to him that we owe the debt. It's finally only through Christ that he can deal with that debt as he takes our punishment upon himself on the cross and that debt is paid with. And it'd be lovely if He stopped there in verse 12 and forgive us our debts And lead us not into temptation, but he doesn't, as we also have forgiven our debtors. I came across this tale recently um, by Robert Louis Stevenson. He was telling the story of two unmarried sisters sharing a single room together. And people who are in close proximity, no doubt they do fall out. Some of you will know that. But these sisters fell out and disagreed over an area of theology Um, The controversy was so bitter that they never spoke to one another again throughout their entire lives. And yet possibly because of lack of means or because of their innate Scottish fear of scandal, they continued to to live in this same room and they drew a chalk line across the floor to separate their two domains. It divided the doorway, it divided, divided the fireplace, so each one could go on and do their cooking and go in and out without stepping into the territory of the other. For years, they coexisted in, in hateful silence. Their meals, their bath, their family visitors, exposed to each other's unfriendly silence. At night, each one going to bed, hearing the breathing of the other, of her enemy. They attended church. No doubt they, they prayed this prayer. But I take it they never meant it. How could they truly pray our Father and remain estranged? How could they truly pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and remain divided, as they did? What's going on here? What is going on with this second part of verse 12? Why does Jesus include it? And then if you look at verse 14 and 15, it's the only petition within the Lord's Prayer where he expands and he clarifies upon it. Maybe showing how important it is, maybe... Maybe showing how unnatural it is for people who who love to hold on to debts. What's it about? Well, as Andrew read for us later in Matthew's Gospel, I I wonder if the parable that Jesus tells in chapter 18 helps us to to get to grips with some of what's going on here. If you remember, it's a a beautiful story, a masterful story, of a servant who owns owns literally millions, billions to a king, 10,000 bags of gold, He can't pay it back. This debt is written off. Can you imagine the relief? Imagine the weight off his shoulders as this debt no longer has to be dealt with to the king. It's just removed. It's gone. It's forgotten. He's liberated forever. But it turns out another servant owes him money. Just a bit of money. Maybe a hundred silver coins and And yet he doesn't show the kindness to this other servant that he has been shown by the king. The first servant has been forgiven, but the first servant will not forgive. To which he's told, you wicked servant, I called, I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you?" you? See the point? God's the king. We are the one who owe him a great debt. He has completely written that debt off. We are forgiven. We are free. The, the weight is removed from our shoulders. But we owe little debts to each other. And we love to cling on to them. And we struggle so much to forgive each other. I so do you see the importance of verse 12? I think what Jesus is saying is our forgiving of each other shows that we get grace. It shows that we understand the enormity of our sin and yet the glories of his grace. Our tendency is to use binoculars and we look at other people's sins and we see them as enormous. And we look at our own sin with the binoculars the other way around. They look tiny. And I know it's complicated. I know there are nuances when it comes to forgiveness and whether reconciliation will always come after forgiveness, I take it it won't. But if we're not willing to forgive, friends, take care. There is something peculiarly Christian about forgiveness, about the fact that we forgive each other. It's something that the world does not know in the same way. I'll put it this strongly, it seems to me that forgiveness comes It's much more of a package than we would like. We all need it from him. We all need it from one another. And so I have to say, if there are grievances in this room, then maybe this is the week to deal with them. And maybe forgiveness needs to be offered, the hand of friendship an unforgiving church is a, is a contradiction in terms. And if there's forgiveness that needs to be shown from this room outside this room, then again, be brave this week. Take that first step. Forgiveness is costly. I wonder if unforgiveness is more costly because it hardens us and it changes us. As always, as usual, anyway, John Stott, um, the pastor, writer, preacher, died a few years ago, says this. He's very pithy and helpful. On the importance of forgiving one another, he says, One of the chief evidences of true penitence is a forgiving spirit. Once our eyes have been opened to the enormity of our offense against God the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison, extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offences of others, it proves that we have minimised our own. You see, forgiveness comes as much more of a package than we would like. So provision? Humbly each day, Lord, give us what we need, please pardon, Lord, forgive my sins, my debts, as I do the same for others. And thirdly then, protection. Verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. One of the things that Andy brought out a few weeks ago, just just kind of before we started the Lord's Prayer, was this idea that so often we are blind to the reality of the daily battle. In fact, I've got a Some of you will know this, I have an alarm twice a day now coming on my phone at about 9.30 and about 1.30 that just simply says battle to remind me that I'm in a daily battle because I daily forget, hourly forget. Jesus won't let us forget that our life is a spiritual battle. And again, just as in Matthew earlier, he was tested by the devil in the wilderness... So as kingdom people, we are to pray that God will give us the strength that we need and rescue us from the devil's schemes. They may be blatantly sinister, or they may simply be sleepwalking through life, not seeing the reality of what's going on in this life. The pressures, the difficulties that just draw us away from him. But again, as you look at verse 13, as with last week, there is a simplicity here, but there is a depth to this bit of the prayer as well. There's stuff we need to explore and try and understand what's going on. Some have been confused. Is temptation in and of itself wrong? Because in um, Matthew 4, verse 1, Jesus was already been tempted. He was led into the spirit, into the, by the Spirit into the wilderness, tempted by the devil. James will say in his letter that trials, testings, temptations are beneficial. They're even, they're good for us. James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. They can be the gym in which our spiritual muscles grow. And so what are we to pray for here I think it's this. Probably the answer is that prayer here that we're praying for is to overcome the temptation, is to ask that God would protect us from ending up out of our debts. See, trials and testings can be good things, but we are not spiritual superheroes, it seems to be saying. Satan is real, He's defeated, he's vanquished, but he's real, and he's still a dangerous foe, and he's still too powerful for us. So what are we praying for? Well, imagine it like this, two scenarios. First one, imagine you find yourselves in a room of trial. Imagine that there is a clear exit in your room of trial, and you can see where to get out. And it seems to me whenever God leads us into these kinds of of growth situations, he always clearly labels the exit route for us. So Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 10 and 13, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Okay, so scenario one, a situation that God puts you in for your growth. Scenario two, a second room. There is no exit sign. There is no way of escape that you can see. These are Satan's doings, says James. And yet here's the thing. James 1.13, here's the thing, if you find yourself in this room, I take it we don't just find our own way there. So I take it we don't just find ourselves there, but we put ourselves there because of our sin. Let me read you this from James 1.13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full-grown, gives birth to death. You see the difference? So scenario one, a room in which God puts us for our growth, always a clear exit. Scenario two, well, we can't just say we found ourselves there. Because it came from our sinful hearts. Evil desires led to dragged away, led to enticement, led to conception and birth of sin and finally to death. If we find ourselves in a context where we really, really shouldn't be, we can't say, well, it's God's fault. These temptations and trials are good for me. I've read it in 2 Corinthians. No, he would say, read James 1 and see why you are there. It's because of your sin. And so I take it our prayer is for the second type of room. Lord, don't let my heart so deceive me that I find myself in this situation where I ought not be, and yet then try and justify it. So my question for you is if you were Satan, how would you take you down? I take it you know you. I take it you know your weaknesses, you know your hearts. So if you were Satan, how would you take you down? What would you do? What would your tactics be? Maybe to isolate you, maybe to just drag you away into situations or contexts or friendships that you know are unhelpful. What would you do? Well, I think Jesus is here getting us to pray that we might be protected from those situations that would drag us away from him. Temptations that our hearts charge into, and then leave us ruined? Do you know you? Do you know your hearts? Do you know how Satan would take you down if you were him? Are you being wise? Maybe pray each morning that the Lord will protect you, to not let you be taken into those situations where your heart would be enticed, where where the, the allure of sin would overtake you. And ruin you. We're to steer clear of temptation rather than flirt with it. I've heard various um, helpful illustrations down the years for this. I remember from a teenager upwards, variations on a theme. Maybe you're a new chauffeur being interviewed to try and, and work out whether you can drive the car up a narrow track to the mansion at the top of the mountain. Maybe you're a new helmsman being interviewed and you're sailing close to the rocks. Which one does the interviewer choose? Which one would the boss rather be driven by? Not the chauffeur who can get as close to the edge as possible. Not the helmsman who can get as close to the rocks as possible. But the one who's wise, who keeps you away from the edge, who keeps you away from the rocks. Problem is, it comes to temptation and we think we're okay. And we think, I'll just get a little bit close to the rocks, that's all right. I can manage this. Or I get a little bit close to the edge. I'm okay. Yet before we know it, we're ruined. Don't get as close to the edge as you can, but rather pray that the Lord would deliver us from temptation, deliver us from the evil one, that he would protect us. So provision, humbly each morning, daily bread, the things that we need, looking to him, remembering we're not in charge, we're not the boss. Pardon. Daily coming to him, acknowledging our sin, his ability to deal with our sin, his kindness, and then protection, that we would not fall. And I want to say there's never a day when this prayer is not for you. There is never a morning when this is not our daily prayer. There's never a time when we don't need to recognize whom we pray to. Many have noted that maybe, as Jesus focuses in on these three verses, 11, 12, and 13, that maybe he has in mind the Trinitarian God to whom we look. Yes, we pray to our Father in heaven, verse 9, but perhaps the means by which he answers is through each of the members of the Godhead. So God the Father is the one who creates, the one who provides. God the Son is the one through whom we have atonement, forgiveness. The one who brings pardon for us, the one who on the cross pays our debt. And then the protection comes from the Holy Spirit, is the one who leads and who guides and is with us each and every day. So as we look to him in verse 11, 12, and 13, we are looking to him, God the Trinity. And yet what do we do now? We've come to the end of verse 13. We've come to the end of this series. There's a new series next week in 1 Thessalonians. Because the danger would be we just look ahead to next week. And yet I think this is a prayer that increasingly ought to shape us and to mold us, and to transform us, and to reorientate our hearts, reorientate our lives as as individuals, as a church. And so let me encourage you, as I encourage myself, to find a time each and every day to pray the Lord's Prayer. Make it a part of your daily diet, part of your daily routine. There are postcards at the back if you haven't got one. Put a reminder on your phone, whatever it is that wakes you up from your slumber through the day. To remember who you are and who he is. That we might be a people daily who pray to our Father in heaven. Let's not let this this prayer just kind of wash over us for next week. But rather let's take it in. Let's be shaped by it. And pray in the way that Jesus taught us to. Let me pray for us now. Our Father in heaven, we confess before you once again our pride, our desire to do things on our own, to be independent of you. We, we see the nature of our hearts that so easily turn from you. And so we pray that you would indeed be shaping us and moulding us and transforming us and our lives would be reorientated on the things that you care about. Thank you that you are one who who provides for us. Forgive us, please, when when we look to wrongly provide for ourselves, excluding you from the situation. Help us to see our need of daily bread from you. Forgive us, please, for the way in which our pride means we, we don't look to you to be pardoned, but we seek to cover our own shame or to, to try and earn the relationship again with you. Help us, please, to be those who forgive. Father, particularly pray for any for whom we find it very hard to forgive. Make us people for whom our, our knee-jerk reaction is to, to seek to forgive others. And might we be those who, who don't just sleepwalk through life, but know our need of protection and the reality of the spiritual battle. Help us to know our own hearts that would seek to, to take us into situations where we might be enticed and allured by our sin. Guard us, please, from Satan. Our Father, we pray these things for us as individuals in our daily lives, but we pray this for us as a church. That we might be a church that knows how to pray. That we might be a church that prays to our Father in heaven. Amen.